Are you looking for a better way to offer financing to your patients without all of the big fees that some of the big lenders ding you with at your practice? We were looking for a better option and fortunately we were able to find Mountain America Credit Union's patient financing program. They offer flexible rates and terms for both you and your patients and they offer financing in seven U.S. states and growing. Contact Mountain America Credit Union today to learn more. Welcome to the Practice X Factor, the podcast to help provide you with tools, ideas, and real-world insights to grow your practice 2x, 5x, or even 10x. Welcome to another episode of the Practice X Factor. We appreciate everybody tuning in again. Um, as always, we're trying to bring you valuable content to uh, build your practice and help you with your professional career. So today we have uh, something a little different, but it's going to be great and, um, you know, a topic that maybe isn't always as, as exciting to talk about, but uh, is very important uh, to make sure you have a good long-term career in practice. So we're going to be talking about uh, malpractice insurance. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a malpractice um, attorney on from that perspective, but now we're going to get perspective from some dentists who really know what they're doing. So we have uh, two guests on the podcast today. We have Dr. Richard Engar. Um, he is a, a consultant now with um, PIE, which stands for Professional Insurance Exchange Mutual, and that's a malpractice um, insurance company for dentists. And I'm actually a member of PAE, and that's why I, I know these two, and so we brought him on. Um, he recently just retired as the CEO of PIE, but he's still there as a consultant and doing some training. Um, graduated from the University of Washington School of Dentistry, practiced for 10 years full-time in Salt Lake County. He's a clinical faculty at the University of Utah School of Dentistry, and uh, a whole long list of, re- of awards. So, Dr. Angar, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, great to have you. And then, and then we have Dr. David Alvord. So, Dr. Alvord, uh, pretty neat thing. He actually just uh, completed a term just a couple years ago as the mayor of South Jordan, which is a city near where I live. Um, he's worked as a hygiene instructor um, for the one of the local hygiene programs at the community college. Um, he graduated from the Case School of Dental Medicine in 2004. Um, he's been a board member of the uh, local district dental society and, and also other numerous awards. So, Dr. Albert, thanks for joining us today as the new uh, CEO of PIE. Great to be with you, Tyler. Yeah, and uh, and, and Dr. Albert, he is a uh, he is you know on the clock as he mentioned. So he does get calls. You know, if if dentists have questions, he may step away for a moment. So if you hear a pause, he's not ditching out on us. He's a uh, He's, he's got work to do as well. So, but thank you both for being here. Um, tell, you know, Dr. Angar first, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with, um, you know, uh, a self-insured malpractice company. You've been doing this for a long time and it's, uh, you've been very helpful uh, to me over the years in just setting up things, even like, you know, what should be on a informed consent and how you sign a hip release and those kind of things. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got to, to, to there and how you got into dentistry and what got you to that point? Well, sure. As an introduction, PIE was uh, started in 1978 with the idea of dentists being able to control their own destinies as far as handling malpractice claims and setting the premiums. 
there was a surge in premiums, and a dentist named Charles Parkin was a visionary and with a group of other dentists got um, the information necessary to form an insurance company. And so Pi was started in 1978, and 100 brave dentists signed up, and it went from there. My personal involvement and experience started in the 1980s when the state of Utah had a law in the books that whenever a malpractice claim was to be started, what was called a notice of intent was sent to the dentist, and they had to convene what was called a pre-litigation panel review, which involved an attorney who was the adjudicator, a public member, in other words, a layperson, and then a professional, a dentist. And at that time, I was on the board, I was on the board of directors for the Salt Lake District Dental Society, and the district was the one who assigned dentists to be on these panels. Well, it turned out my teaching day and lab day was Tuesday, and my day off was Thursday. And those were the days where they held most of these hearings. So I was available and had experience being the panel member in 12 of these hearings. So I got a lot of practical experience hearing cases and making a decision as to whether or not they were meritorious. The idea was if a case was decreed non-meritorious, then it should go away. The attorney should drop it, and life goes on. Well, PIE, and the, my uh, predecessor was a dentist named Dr. Mantilla, who took over as the attorney, in fact, as it was called, and organized back then, which was basically a word for the CEO, in 1984. And I was assigned as an editor of the UDA Action to write an article for the Dental Association on malpractice companies, and that's how I met Dr. Mantilla. Well, in 1990, he was in his uh, mid-60s and was thinking about retiring, and they basically headhunted me because I was known in the Dental Association through my activities as editor and a uh, member of the Salt Lake District Dental Board. And, of course, because of my involvement in these malpractice uh, pre-litigation reviews. So they enticed me, and I couldn't resist. So I trained for a while to see if I would want to do this, and I made the decision in 1990 to go for it. So I sold my practice and started at Pi full-time, becoming the attorney, in fact, as of September 1st, 1991, and so, basically, I celebrated my 30-year anniversary by retiring, and uh, so I was a pie for 30 years full-time, and now I'm strictly a consultant. So that's, in a nutshell, how I was involved. Well, congrats on retirement. I heard uh, life gets busier when you retire sometimes. You have time to do all the other projects, but um, I know you certainly, uh, I remember you used to write articles for some of the AG, the um uh, AGD and, and magazines about malpractice cases and those kind of things. And it seemed like, you know, over the years, I remember you writing some things that seemed like root canals were usually the number one um, areas where there were problems. Is that still pretty consistent today? Am I, am I on track with that or has that changed much? You are on track from the standpoint that, unfortunately, uh, a lot of dentists tackle especially molar root canals, and they miss the MB2 canal and or they perforate the tooth and or are short on a fill and it's not successful. And, of course, they refer the patient to a specialist, and the first question the patient asks is, well, gee, why didn't you refer me to the specialist mm -hmm. in the first place? So a lot of these don't become full-blown claims, but their patient's upset, and so we create or send a release of all claims to the dentist 
which basically is a document stating that there's no liability, but it's a good faith gesture. We're going to give you money in exchange for you not taking any further legal action or posting bad reviews, so forth and so on. The patient signs the release, the patient gets their money back, and everybody's happy. Occasionally, though, we do have claims that uh, are generated and go to the litigation system. Some of those can be settled. Others we fight. We've had a few cases go to trial, which we've won. So we're not afraid to take a case to trial. But as far as phone calls and problems, endo is number one. Although right now we're seeing more and more situations involving implants, Mm -hmm. whether it's placement that goes bad, i.e. you plunk an implant into the inferior alveolar canal, you've got a problem. If you have a go, one goes into the sinus, that can be a problem. And then some dentists aren't up to the task of good restorations. A lot of people are trying all on fours and they really don't have the experience and those can become problems. So instead of uh, oral surgery claims that involve third molar extractions, we now have more claims in oral surgery involving implant placement. So that's a big one. And a lot of the other things that come in are calls about cosmetic dentistry. You get a patient that just cannot be satisfied And a lot of those don't become claims, but they're frustrating to the dentist. They want to just get rid of the patient. So it's the same thing. They get a release. Um, Patient signs it, agrees not to go on social media, agrees not to um, disparage the dentist, agrees not to sue, and that's the end of that. So that's kind of what we see now, more of an evolution from expensive oral surgery claims and serious endo claims that go to trial to complaints, patients wanting refunds, but the claims involve more extensive procedures, implants that go bad, restorative dentistry that goes bad. Yeah, it certainly uh, seems like, you know, uh, in a lot of situations, everyone's just thinking implants as the solution, but, you know, we're learning more and more that implants can have just as many problems, and in some ways they have can have more problems than natural teeth, so it's not the not the end-all be-all. It's a great, a great tool to have in our tool belt. But uh, I think, you know, for those listening too, I mean, I've heard statistics that anywhere from only a third to a half of diagnosed teeth with decay are actually treated. And I think, uh, you know, a good way to, to not only grow your practice, but also help your patient is really, you know, pay attention and, and really inform your patient on when they have decay, even if it's a you know, a, a DO composite on number 12, it doesn't have to go very far before it turns into a root canal. And so a good way to avoid uh, any of those root canal litigation issues is to avoid it altogether when possible. And it saves your patient a lot of money uh, as well. And then they're, they're probably, you know, from my understanding, you probably don't have too much uh, malpractice claims with composite or amalgam uh, fillings. They're usually when you get into more extensive things like root canals and, and implants, but, uh, but that, that's very helpful. Um, doc, Dr. Alvord, are you still there? Yes. Perfect. All right, good. You didn't get any calls yet. Great. Um, so, so tell us a little bit how you uh, kind of got into uh, being the new CEO at PIE and, and, you know, your interest and your involvement. Oh, well, it's great to be with you. And I, I first just want to um, compliment Dr. Engar. You know, I think for most of us dentists, you know, I've, I was a practicing dentist for nearly 16 years. Um, Dr. Engar has just been a fixture in Utah dentistry and a real asset. You know, I, I had to call him a few times with some questions, um, and uh, it was just so great to always hear that familiar voice uh, behind the phone. And uh, as I've been making this transition, it's been amazing to hear how many dentists have really wanted to 
thank Dr. Angar to pass along thanks to him and, uh, and just what a wonderful thing he's done for the community. He answers questions for people that go way beyond malpractice. He's just a wealth of knowledge. Um, I don't know that I would have been comfortable taking this job had Richard not agreed to stay on as a consultant. Uh, he just knows too much to let him go into the wild. So we're, we're super grateful to Dr. Engar. Um, I think he and I kind of formed a friendship early on because I kind of sent him some interesting cases. When I ran for mayor, I had a patient um, claim that I was violating HIPAA because I was uh, mentioning to patients that I was running for political office, and uh, we quickly had an attorney. I called Dr. Engar, told him about that situation. I had an attorney uh, who was a patient of mine who sent a letter to HIPAA and cleared it all up, said it was a First Amendment right that I can have political speech. Um, but uh, some interesting things have come my way as I've pursued a political career along with dentistry, and I think Dr. Engar kind of witnessed some of that and appreciated it and uh, as, as he decided to retire we started having conversations and he recruited me and I at first uh, shadowed him I, I came into Pi listened to some of the cases and I, I think I really got an appreciation for the goodness of the work you know as dentists we work so hard um, at being meticulous we we have so many things that we have to keep in mind we have personalities we have tongues we have retraction, all these things that we have to, to keep in mind. And every once in a while you have a patient who feels like the dentist has deep pockets and they can score off this dentist. And so for Pi to defend the profession and defend our good dentists, I felt like that was something I wanted to be a part of and something to carry on the good work of Dr. Engar. Yeah, and I think just not even just locally, but, you know, nationally is, I mentioned, you know, some of the other journals and stuff he's been in. I think, you know, for listeners who haven't read some of his advice, you're missing out because it's just a lot of things. I mean, they, uh, you know, Python's a, a local newsletter to me. How often does that newsletter come out? Is it quarterly? Right. right. Quarterly, yeah. I mean, it's just full of just, hey, here's one dentist experience. Here's here's trends we're seeing. You know, so um, whatever state you're in, I would – you know, recommend you pay attention to the trends in the marketplace because fortunately we've never had any big fires to put out in my office. But, you know, I think preparing ahead of time really helps. Now, with, with something like um, social media that you mentioned, Dr. Engar, is, are online reviews considered part of social media? You know, if a patient signs a release, I know each state's different, but at least here locally, is that is that generally um, prohibit the patients from – uh, leaving leaving things like negative reviews if they sign that release, or is that kind of a, a freedom of speech, or is it still too much of a gray area to really define? You know, that's a good question, but it's significant because one of the things that dentists really fear in this day and age are bad reviews. Consumers mm-hmm. don't go to the yellow pages anymore. They go online. Right. And so that has been a real concern as, with our claims. And a lot of the dentists, the first thing they worry about is, well, this patient will go and do bad reviews and da-da-da-da-da. And as far as freedom of speech, I mean, there are limitations. The old adage that freedom of speech ends in a crowded theater when you call fire. But the thing is disparaging bad remarks. And I know in some areas that is a little bit of an issue. Can you put something that on a release? And we've had a handful of plaintiff lawyers that 
object to some of the language, but I want to protect the dentist's reputations, and I want to prevent them from the trauma and losing sleep over bad reviews. So we do have an anti-disparagement clause that's very specific, and I'd say 95 96% of the time, it's signed, there's no questions, no problems. Now, <clears throat> different states do have different regulations, and out-of-state dentists should consult with their own malpractice carriers. And again, the adage is you don't give a patient a refund if it's done in anger unless there's a release. You've got to have some protection. The worst thing to do would be to give somebody 2500 bucks, then still have them turn around and sue you and make your life miserable. So that anti-disparagement clause is very important. And we've had that in there probably for at least the last 10 years. Once these um, reviews started coming to the fore, and consumers started going more and more to that avenue to find a new dentist, they want to get somebody with four and a half stars. It has a great rating. It used to be you'd ask your friends, who do you go to as a dentist? Well, now people go to social media. And that's why that's so important. But again, as a dentist in another state, you just have to make sure that the language you use does conform with the laws and regulations of the Practice Act and or the state as far as what you can limit in terms of what patients can say about you. Well, and I, I think, you know, because um, uh, I follow a lot about this and it seemed like, you know, it has calmed down a little bit from the sense that, you know, if you, you know, my, my recommendation is always, hey, if you have a bad one, go out and find five people who leave you a good one. Because a lot of things, even if you go buy something on Amazon or you're looking up, a, a you know, a, a dry cleaner, if, if the reviews are so perfect, there's nothing wrong, you know, people are suspicious of that, too. So, you know, there is right. some, some research to say, well, when there's an occasionally one bad one in there, it actually shows that you're a real practice or a real business. And, but but you're right, you know, I've had that where we've, you know, maybe started some treatment and a patient decided they didn't want to finish and we've had them sign the release and refunded them and then they go and leave a bad review. Anyway, it's not too often, you know, we don't, fortunately, don't have too many of those, but, you know, it's never a fun thing and then you got to decide, do I respond to that or, or just leave it as it is? But it does, you know, it does jeopardize potentially the health of a practice if no one's coming because their the reviews are so bad. Um, right. And if I can interject, I mean, one thing dentists are tempted to do is respond to the review and say, hey, that didn't happen. This is what really happened. Yeah. Of course, with HIPAA, you can't do that. Right. These are the types of people that will file a HIPAA complaint and, and uh, most malpractice carriers do not cover HIPAA complaints unless you pay an extra premium and get that specifically as part of your policy. But what I suggest, and you've hit the nail on the head, I'll tell the dentist to have their office manager call their patients who love the practice and say, hey, Mary, we've got a patient who put a real bad review. Can you respond and say, oh, that patient must be crazy. Dr. Alvord's the best or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You see, and then like you say, enough people put on good reviews that kind of downplays and you can pay money too to have experts come in who can bury the bad reviews and do various things so there's much better alternatives than getting angry and doing a knee-jerk reaction and trying to answer it and then get in trouble with HIPAA yeah usually I say it's it's more of a personal problem for that patient it's probably far beyond just their dentistry and you know it's, it's a waste of time and mental energy to get yeah. better things to do than that but uh, but yeah so um, Dr. Alvord, you know, you're kind of on the on the leading edge of all this now, you know, lots of new things, changes. 
do you see any big changes on the horizon with um, you know with with malpractice coverage, the way we're practicing, the way informed consent works? Do you see anything um, like that, or is the the tried and true working pretty well, and you think that'll continue for some time? Well, it's kind of like basketball. You know, you've got your fundamentals that you just always have to have. You know, your rep- record keeping and uh, all of the uh, you know not not ever getting in over your head, making sure that um, if you're doing a procedure, you're meeting the standard of care, and that um, we're getting good informed consent. I think uh, one area that we're seeing dentists uh, starting to slip a little bit is uh, giving patients options. Um, and documenting it. So, you know, in, mm. in school we were taught to present option A, option B, and option C, and then we'd have the patient initial the option they elected to do, and and that's something that um, we may need to emphasize a little more going forward is that not just are you giving the patient consent, and these are the risks, but you're actually giving them options. Well, we don't have to do a denture. We could all, always do a full mouth reconstruction or or, or this or that. And so um, that, that's one trend. Another trend we're getting into that needs some clarification, and Dr. Engar can speak to this as well, uh, is holistic dentistry and, and the removal of dead bone on these cavitations. And uh, some of these areas that um, haven't been traditional to dentistry, um, there's going to be states looking at this and deciding whether they feel that's in the scope of dentistry or if that's better done by a surgeon or, or someone in medicine. So we're we're watching that issue closely. That makes sense, and you know, it seems like you know, especially with like electronic records now, you know, because it's the same in my office. We have all these templates for crown, composite, remove those kind of things, but it's easy to kind of uh, abdicate too much to the template that oh, it informs and it has everything in there. But you still have to go through it, at least semi-customize each one and say, hey, you know, the the acronym I was taught was barn, which is benefits, alternative risk, or do nothing. But um, to your point, you know, I think it's important not just for not just for a legal standpoint, but also just to do what's in the best interest of our patients. That we give them at least two or three options. I think often, you know, we could probably come up with seven or ten options, but that seems to overwhelm patients and probably drop case acceptance. But if you you know you at least give them two or three options, I think that's uh, uh, a, a you know important thing. Do you do you guys see problems with that more now with with records, um, oh, charting yeah, with, with the templates and the electronic records? Yeah, so if I could, you, yeah, go ahead, Doctor Engar. Well, I was going to say we had a case we actually had to settle a couple of years ago because templates were overused mm-hmm. and not appropriate, and involved a periodontal patient, and the dentist would use these templates that basically every time said, "Oh, referred patient to a periodontist," but that wasn't true. And there weren't good custom entries about the problems that were diagnosed and taken care of. And the case went legal. And when our attorneys reviewed the chart, they basically said, we're dead here. These templates are worthless. And they're so obvious that the plaintiff's attorneys even picked up on it. But this didn't really happen. Of course, the patient denied it. So you've got to modify and customize any templates, particularly where it involves periodontal issues, um, referrals where it's, for example, you want to refer a a patient to an endodontist when the patient doesn't want to go or whatever, but the 
templates just repeated rather than patient refuses, emphasize, whatever, da-da-da-da-da. And you were right on target, too, talking about your barn concept, because informed consent is more than just thrusting a paper in a patient's face and having them sign it. It involves a discussion of risks, alternatives, benefits, uh, results of no treatment, fees, questions, and then in addition to the informed consent, there's an entry in the chart you should put, and if it's a template, fine, as long as it really happens, but that patient just risk, all this are described, patient sign informed consent. So in other words, it's a second backup as far as did the patient really know the risk, did the patient know the alternatives, did they know the benefits, so forth and so on. So that's my comments. Let me turn it over to Dr. Albert because I'm certain, certain he had some comments on this as well. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is um, when you mentioned templates, uh, we're finding that um, that's also problematic if the entry is the exact same every six months. You know, came in for hygiene check, mm. uh, found moderate periodontal disease, referred to periodontist. And uh, if it says that exactly verbatim four times in a row, then the uh, plaintiff's attorney can say that, it wasn't really true that it was just a button they clicked. And so you want to always customize your entries. You want to make sure that you're uh, making them your own, putting in a little funny anecdote or, or even just putting things in your own words. Now, I think for our office, when I practiced, we would always put the template first, but then we would write personal notes um, afterwards mm -hmm. uh, just to make sure that it's, uh, it's a real person that's reviewed it. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're certainly nice to have from a, you know, paper standpoint, and you can dictate while you're, you know, team members typing things. But, uh, you know, I, I always make sure that, you know, and I'd recommend any listening is, you know, when you finish the procedure, stand up and scan through the note before you put your initials on it to make sure that those little little things are added in there. I think, too, you know, I, I know a orthodontist in the Midwest, and he's on a cleft lip and palate team at one of the children's hospitals and when COVID first hit he I remember him saying you know this is the first time I've ever heard of this but the hospital was not doing any type of written consent because they were so concerned about pens and paper being shared with COVID going around which would probably make you guys roll over in your grave to hear that but um you know I think in that light that's where your your note is so critical where you're saying hey we we got a verbal and a written consent we went over options because if that consent form disappears then then that note is all you have and what what's more i mean is the note more important than the written con the signed consent are they pretty equal as far as that goes is one is one more important in a in a review than the other well, number one, the first question our attorneys ask is there a written informed consent in the chart. So that's important. But the backup is the note in the chart. If you're going to forget something, you'd rather forget the note in the chart than the written informed consent. If you don't have that, you really have no proof that the patient was informed of the risks. And whether it's a pad system and the patient can actually sign on the uh, iPad or whatever it is, or some dentists will use paper, the patient signs it, and then they scan it in and shred the paper. But however you do it, that's probably most important. But the backup, and we've seen this in trial, is additional entry or additional discussion that is actually in the treatment notes. The patient can lie on the stand all they want, but if there's a sign-in for consent and a note in the records that says that the discussion occurred, then the jury's going to believe the dentist is telling the truth rather than the patient.
is there a is there a uh, uh, kind of a general time frame? So, uh, for example, you know, I remember years ago we had a patient come in um, for for a root canal, and she was uh, she wanted an oral sedative because she's really anxious. So she mistakenly took the sedative before she arrived and we had not had her sign the consent so we actually had to send her back home and reschedule the root canal because we didn't want to proceed without signed consent form on the root canal so um if if a patient say a patient's in the office today someone listening diagnoses a, a crown or a root canal and the patient's anxious and they're going to have a sedative um, would they be okay to sign the consent today for that procedure that's going to be done next week or is there usually a uh, you know a 24-hour window or what's a reasonable time period for that written consent well the best thing to do is if it's an appointment and you do the treatment plan and they're going to be sedated in a week have them sign it right then and there it may take yeah. a few more minutes but that way you've got it taken care of the patients of sound mind i recommend if a patient's going to need three or four root canals you can put all the teeth numbers on the informed consent. The patient signs it, and then at each appointment say, do you remember what we talked about? Do you understand the risk? Do you have any questions? And then the patient says, no, I'm fine. Then you put in a reviewed uh, consent issues, patients uh, consented to procedure, understood, you know. So it's not like every week they've got to sign an informed consent if you're doing three or four consecutive teeth. I get the same question about fillings. You mentioned fillings, but sometimes we have had problems over either uh, – not enough uh, teeth um, diagnosed, some are missed on the x-ray or whatever, or sensitivities in the patients are not told about that. So usually for the series, uh, with children too, you know, you get these 16, 17-year-olds that drive the younger kids to the appointments, and if the parents haven't had a chance to sign the informed consent, it's the same problem. You know, we're into issues, who's going to pay for it? I didn't realize, and some parents don't think a 12-year-old needs a root canal. So... It's, there's nothing wrong with having the forms signed at the beginning, maybe even a few weeks before the procedure. The important thing is to make sure that step is done. But you handle it properly. If a patient is sedated, they're not of sound mind. They cannot legally sign or um, make uh, agreement that they'll accept the risks. Yeah, or or we've had it before where grandma brings the grandkid and she's not the legal guardian, and so yep. we have to get, get mom on the phone. Fortunately now, you know, most Practice management softwares allow you to send consent electronically and the right. guardian can sign it. But, uh, but you know, it can feel like a little bit of a hassle. But I think now, you know, we've, we've kind of settled in on for sedation patients. We're very clear that they should show up early, bring the medication, do not take it. And we just have them sit in the chair. And then, then we can monitor them anyway. But uh, that way, right. get all the paperwork out of the way before we jump in because that's uh, not fun when you blocked out, you know, a couple hours for a procedure and then you can't do it. Because of, right. because of that, you know. Um, Dr. Alward, do you have any any um, thoughts on, you know, that what what worked well for you with consents on patients when you were when you had your practice? No, I think everything that's been touched on has been great. Um, we we had um, hanging files, you know, next to our operatories, and so that staff could get those really easy. Sometimes the barrier to inform consents. It's just the hassle of finding one and printing it. And yes. So we, we pre-printed a bunch of those, and we'd have them just hanging into the, into the room. And um, I don't know that we always did those for an occlusal deposit, uh, but anything um, 
surgical, a root canal, uh, extraction, implant, uh, dentures. You know, it's kind of, you can kind of picture what could get you in trouble, and you always want to have an informed consent signed. And maybe Dr. Angar would correct me and say everything should have an informed consent, but um, there is the general consent they sign when they come in. Well, and that's what, that's where I think, too, is, you know, for me, intraoral photos are so valuable because I've felt so many small things when a patient goes, well, you know, say, say you do a crown on a tooth and then it ends up hurting two months later and needs a root canal. They kind of want to sometimes point the blame on the dentist, especially if it was asymptomatic before you started. But those intraoral photos have mitigated so many of those issues because we go, hey, remember when it looked like this and show them that big gaping hole in their head? And how it looks now, and it's like they go, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that was pretty bad. I, I get it, right? And and that's nice because we don't, we, you know, I don't feel like we have a lot of hostile patients. But you know, when your tooth hurts, it hurts, and it's not exciting to go. And now I got an extra trip to the dentist or endodontist, and, and those have helped us a lot too. But but Dr. Engar, you were going to say something, I think. No, I just concur. I mean, if you've got evidence that there's a problem, and one thing too is sometimes a patient will come in, they got two teeth in a row that need work mm-hmm. and you pick the one that hurts the most, but then they go home and the anesthetic wears off. It still hurts. They think you did the wrong tooth. So it's wise to say, you've got two problems here. It's almost like we're flipping a coin, but we're probably going to have to do both teeth, but I'm picking the one that you think is the worst today and document that in the chart carefully. And then you won't be accused of doing the wrong tooth. Do, do photos, I mean, are, are, are extra oral or intraoral photos, are those becoming more of a, a help or, or a hindrance at all as far as malpractice claims? Are they, are they not really, do they not really hold up compared to the written notes or how, how do those factor in these days? They're part of it. I mean, it doesn't hurt to have them. Don't get me wrong, but uh, they're not the be all end all. The best thing is to have good written records. The photographs just are sort of help and enhance the information that's in the written records. But as you say, if you've got a view that shows a, large carious lesion that was deep that sort of calms a patient down if they think that you overtreated them or did something that caused their problem or that they shouldn't have been as sensitive as they were we had a we had one a couple years ago so i've only had one time where a patient made a complaint to the state licensing board about treatment we didn't um, what happened was he had a mouthful of upper rotten teeth. He was missing about half of them, and then everything that was there was decayed. And he uh, he drove from um, probably about 70 miles away, but he worked only a block away from us. Because oh. usually someone that drives that far, I would kind of be like, this might be a red flag unless their referral is why they're yeah. driving past 100 dentists, you know, that, that they've already burned. And anyway, he uh, we did we did a crown on like tooth number eight and. He didn't have the money to do the rest of the teeth, but this tooth had broken off. And um, so anyway, he filed a complaint saying that we'd ruined his tooth. And I, I actually didn't even do the crown. I had a, a dentist covering for me while I was out of town. So it was done in my office. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, so he, he filed this, this complaint and he went and got a, a, another opinion. And, and they said, oh, yeah, you probably need an implant. So he wanted us to pay for his implant. But we had taken full mouth uh, extra oral, intra oral photos before we started treatment. And so we mailed those to him and to the state, and he quickly withdrew the claim because you could see it from 100 feet away, even if he had no experience in dentistry, that, you know, that there were much bigger problems, and we were trying, you know, we were trying to help him out. But, uh, you know, that's just, for those listening, I would 
recommend a side of your consent. Just get those photos because they're so easy to take. Almost everybody has them now. Cameras are, are much less expensive, and, and they're just great to educate your patients with as well. Well, that is good, particularly these patients that only come in on these emergencies and they don't realize what a mess they are. And you have evidence that you know, this is a front tooth. The only reason he wanted it done, he had a boatload of other problems, see? Right. And he wouldn't let us do it. He wouldn't let us do a comprehensive exam when we wanted to do it. So there you go. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Dennis, we understand, hey, there's no posterior bite. They're ha they have collapse. It puts too much pressure on the front teeth. But patients don't understand that because they just... right. Want, want those those uh, social six teeth to show when they smile, and so those <laughs> photos really help a lot. But uh, but yeah, what what do you um, you know, Doctor Alvord, do you see anything with um, you know with, with COVID? I know there've been some added consents. Um, you know, the it's still a crystal ball as to what the future holds for you know uh, what's going to happen with COVID. Is there going to be a COVID twenty, a COVID twenty one? Uh, lots of unknowns, but. Do you see that as a big part of uh, the future for more more consents, or uh, is that something that probably will be kind of case specific if we ever have another outbreak like this? But do you, do you see any big um, changes in the way informed consent are done based on this? I think it'll still be a signature, either like Dr. Angar mentioned, either on a pad or or in paper. But um, there are a lot of nuances with COVID. And I would encourage anyone listening that's with Pi, you know, if you don't feel like you're up to speed, please call me here. I'll get you the latest documents that Dr. Engar uh, very uh, diligently put together. Um, there's things that, you know, maybe you don't even think about. What, what do you do if a patient just got off a plane three days ago? Uh, what, what do you do if an employee uh, is diagnosed positive? Do you have to quarantine the whole office? Um, we know the answer to those things, and we've actually prepared documents. And so I would really recommend that um, anyone that isn't really solid on how to handle COVID uh, to, to give me a call if you're a Utah dentist or give your insurance carrier a call if you're out of state. It's so important that you get this right. Yeah, lots of lots lots to still learn on that, but uh, I think that's very valuable. So. Um, well, this has been great. You know, like we say with our, with the newsletters and the podcasts we do, we like to make it an unofficial CE course in every episode. And I think, um, you know, again, for some, maybe this isn't the most riveting topic, but I actually think it's really interesting and it's it's fun to kind of dig in and look at, you know, the the do's and don'ts. And also, you know, when you're in a, a growing practice and you're busy and you're seeing lots of patients, it's really easy to be be too busy and you start neglecting these kind of things and then when you know if if heaven forbid something big lands in your lap it can it can really take your practice down so um any any parting thoughts uh dr alvord and then dr Engar? okay i guess you asked me to go first i i just want to thank you for the the, the uh, opportunity to to participate um Lawsuits can be something that can cause people to lose sleep, and and uh, it can be a big deal for you. So try to be diligent. Try to take good notes. Um, stay within your comfort zone. If you need to take a couple extra CE courses before attempting a new procedure, go ahead and, and practice a few times on a model first before you do it on a human. Always you know, feel like you're shooting layups. Don't shoot three-pointers with dentistry. Shoot things that are 
easy for you to, to accomplish in the, in the chair. Don't take risks. And uh, you can always become more competent. Um, we encourage you to do that. And if you ever have any questions, be sure to call us. Our best dentists call often. Our worst dentists, we don't hear from them until they've been served. And so uh, we would hope you'd stay in touch. Yeah, what, what's, uh, what's your uh, contact information for PI if someone has a question or, um, you know, uh, wants to learn more? How would they reach you? 1-800, I'm sorry, 801-262-0200. Perfect. Great. And, uh, and Dr. Engar, any, any uh, final thoughts? Well, Dr. Alvord's covered some really good things about uh, staying in your comfort zone. But one other thought that some dentists have is you're never sued by a friend, which means that you try to get to know your patients. You um, see a lot of them a lot of the time, and they'll start uh, being, um, you know, they'll, they like coming to talk to you. They don't necessarily like what you have to do to them, but be sympathetic, listen and usually if you're making a good college try and they know you're being honest, they're less apt to be angry if problems happen. But the key is communication and, again, letting patients know what's going on and why and, and being taking the time, not rushing through everything and making people think they're just on an assembly line. With COVID-19, it's a little easier because you're really only supposed to have minimal people in your office and nobody in your waiting room. And your staff can do the same thing. Sometimes they do a really good job and the, some patients want to confide things in with them more than you. But the idea is to be a people person, be a listener, and at the same time, make sure you take CE, that you're competent that you know what you're doing and you do it well. I had a patient whose mantra was, if you're not going to do it right, don't even start. So I think I'll leave it with that. That's great. And I, I uh, you know, I'm glad to be, uh, you know, dentist that's insured by PIE because, you know, the, the difference is PIE is run by dentists and lots of malpractice insurance companies aren't. So, you know, uh, these are these are guys who not just only are smart, but they, know what you're talking about when you're talking about occlusion or an MB2 canal or an IAN. And uh, so, you know, whatever state you're in, I would look to join um, organizations that are are dentist-run or or people who have a lot of experience in dentistry, you know, hygienists, dentist assistants, those kind of things, because it really, uh, you know, helps your practice out when you can talk to somebody who's been there and been in the trenches like you have. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. For more growth tools and to unlock access to weekly practice building tips, visit yourpracticegrowth.com and subscribe to our free weekly email today.